The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. Uh -huh. Okay, okay, good. Good morning, everyone. Uh, so, uh, welcome back. Uh, today is the uh, last day. We're going to just round off with a few final suttas. Uh, just a bit random. There's a bit random today, but. Uh, it's still good fun. Everything in the suttas is interesting uh, in one way or another. Uh, so we're going to see what happens. Uh, so we're going to continue, uh, uh, first of all, with the uh, sutta. We finish off the one we did yesterday, which is uh, called the simile of the lamp. And we're going to get to the simile of the lamp soon. Uh, it's at the very end of the sutta. And it's a very profound simile, but very interesting in many ways. Uh, before we get to that, we're going to finish off on the uh, benefits of uh, anapanasati, the mindfulness of breathing. Uh, and uh, of course, again, the point is it takes you all the way to awakening, this humble breath taking you all the way, which is really uh, cool and really uh, uh, easy and simple. Uh, so uh, let's go through the last part of the sutta. We're now getting into the jhana states uh, and how they also come from mindfulness of breathing here. So uh, I'm just going to do this fairly quickly. I'm not going to spend too much time on this because uh, it's, we've done this before. Uh, and uh, just to, like as a reminder in a sense. Now a mendicant might wish, uh, quite secluded from sensual pleasure, uh, secluded from unskillful qualities, uh, may I enter and remain in the first absorption. Uh, which has rapture and bliss born of seclusion uh, while placing the mind and keeping it connected. Uh. So let them closely focus uh, on this immersion or samadhi or stillness due to mindfulness of breathing. Uh. So if you want to achieve the first jhana, mindfulness of breathing is the way according to this. Uh. And just a quick reminder, secluded from sensual pleasures really means secluded from the five senses. Uh. We know that because... Uh, it has the plural meaning. The plural refers to the senses and uh, not uh, desire as such. Uh, secluded from unwholesome qualities refers to the five hindrances. Uh, yeah, any bad qualities in the mind. Uh, and uh, first absorption here, jhana, is absorption because you are fully immersed or absorbed in that particular uh, state. That's why absorption is a suitable translation. And rapture and bliss born of seclusion, that is the kind of rapture, the kind of bliss, it's a particular kind of bliss, uh, the bliss which is born of seclusion. Uh, and this is more profound than the blisses you had before, but not as profound as the blisses that come afterwards. Uh, and so, um, uh, you know, what, what these things mean? Well, you can really only, you have to experience them to kind of be able to sort out the various degrees of uh, rapture and bliss. Uh, and then you have the idea of placing the mind and keeping it connected, which is this final movement or wobble of the mind that is uh, experienced in the first jhana. That's just to give you some idea what these experiences are like. And as you can see, they are really profound. I mentioned this from the very beginning, that these are on par with the awakening experiences themselves. And when you start to kind of drill into what they mean, what this particular a paragraph means to start to kind of get an appreciation for what, what they are referring to here. Anyway, let's just, um, what was there something else here? Yeah, closely focus on uh, uh, mindfulness of breathing. I didn't really 
uh, talking about this before. They are, they are closely here. The Pali word is sadhu. Huh? And sadhu is like well or good uh, or something to that effect. Yeah, Focus well, focus closely, focus uh, in a good way. Huh? Uh, yeah, like, like the word sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Same kind of word that we use uh, when we express our appreciation of something. Yeah. Um, all right. Now a mendicant might wish, as the placing of the mind and keeping it connected are stilled, may I enter and remain in the second jhana absorption, which has rapture and bliss born of stillness, uh, with internal clarity and confidence, and a unified mind without placing the mind and keeping it connected. Uh, so let them closely focus on the stillness due to the mindfulness of breathing here. So... Uh, this is uh, what we saw before. You understand that the movement of the mind is a problem, so you abandon that. Uh, placing of the mind, keeping it connected, is uh, you let go of that. You li- allow the mind to be completely stilled. Uh, and this is why it's called the rapture and bliss born of stillness. Uh, it's a more profound rapture and bliss than the previous one. Uh, uh, and uh, confidence of the mind, because you are completely confident in the object, that's why the mind doesn't waver anymore, and that's why the stillness then becomes complete. Um, and so the, that's why it is unified, eko di bhava, eko di buddha, and uh, that is the distinction between the second and the first jhana. Now a mendicant might wish, with the fading away of rapture, may I enter and remain in the third jhana, where I will meditate with equanimity, mindful and aware, personally experiencing the bliss of which the noble ones declare. Equanimous and mindful, one meditates in bliss. So let them closely focus on this stillness due to mindfulness of breathing. So the third jhana is when the rapture, the piti, fades away. And when the piti fades away, for the first time in your life, you experience pure bliss, the sukkha, where there's no pity, there's no uh, remnant of that uh, rapture that has been going so far, which originally was physical, but then becomes mental, and now all you have left is uh, sukkha. And um, it's got, one thing I like about the suttas is that they're very understated. Uh, yeah, finally you get all the way to the kind of highest bliss possible in the world and the kind of the noble ones say, yeah, okay, now you're equanimous and mindful and you meditate in bliss. Uh, but actually, this is the highest bliss that is possible to experience uh, in samsara. Uh, beyond this, sukkha, bliss, comes to a complete end and all you have equan- is equanimity. You don't actually experience bliss after this. Uh, but of course, equanimity, and this is the weird thing, is more blissful than bliss. So try to get your head around that one. Uh, so <laughs> so uh, the idea here of personally experiencing is a very important uh, point of translation. Often it is said to be tra- experiencing with the body, uh, which is uh, really, again, uh, not very useful translation at this particular point. Kayena means personally. With kaya here is much more than the body. Kaya is with the, the aggregates apart from consciousness. Uh, yeah, the bo- there's not really there's not there's no natural distinction uh, in Buddhism between the body uh, and other aspects of the mind because the body itself uh, is just a perception. Uh, yeah, so whether those perceptions are mental or physical or feelings are mental, or physical, actually the distinction is not that important. Uh, so kaya is like the uh, personal the, per- the personal aspect of existence. 
consciousness awareness is like impersonal because it's just being aware it doesn't really have any personality to it but all the other factors of the five khandhas are personal in a sense that they will vary depending on who the person is so how you perceive the world will differ from someone how someone else perceives the world how you feel <coughs> things will di- will differ from how other people feel things how you intend uh, what you are interested in what you lean your mind towards will also depend on your background your kamma your habits and all of these kind of things uh, so in a sense these are the personal aspects of the five khandhas whereas consciousness uh, which is awareness itself doesn't really have that uh, uh, it's just awareness it doesn't really have any personal aspect to it uh, so kaya has this idea of personal your body is part of this because your body is also personal it varies depending on the person uh, so this is why personally experiencing kaya meaning personal actually is a very interesting and I think appropriate translation for this word whereas a body often doesn't work at all. So when we do kaya nupassana we're doing like personal contemplation and of course the body is one of these things so that's why the body is a is a personal part of existence. Anyway, so this is now where you get to the highest bliss that is possible to experience in samsaric existence. There is no bliss beyond this. So um, then it goes on. Now a mendicant might wish with the giving up of pleasure and pain and the ending of former happiness and sadness, may I enter and remain in the fourth absorption without pleasure and pain, with pure equanimity and mindfulness. Uh, let them closely focus on this stillness due to mindfulness of breathing. Yeah. So now you leave everything behind that has anything to do with pleasure or pain or happiness and sadness. All of that is left behind. Equanimity is all that remains. Uh, and this is the uh, fourth jhana state uh, and uh, this is the reason why the fourth jhana is so very powerful for insight uh, because you have already seen all pleasure and pain uh, as being irrelevant uh, yeah you've gone beyond that you find a higher happiness beyond uh, so all that exists in samsaric existence at this point is equanimity uh, and uh, so the gap now from here to full awakening is tiny it's very very small because almost everything has left behind uh, and when feelings uh, have been left behind, feelings are the drivers uh, of uh, life. Feelings are the things that motivate us for everything, as I mentioned before. Uh, Vedana Pachya Tanha, yeah, in the dependent origination, our craving, our desires, the things that motivate us to act, these are the feelings. So when all that is left is uh, upeka, there's not much motivation anymore. Uh, there's not much that to drive you into the world. You're no longer seeking very much. Uh, if all that is left is a peck, well then, you know, you just need to sit still and do nothing, really. And so uh, <laughs> and that sort of makes this whole uh, samsaric existence seem kind of completely irrelevant at this point. So you're very close to awakening here when you have this pure experience of upeka, equanimity. Neither pain nor pleasure, adukka masukka in the Pali, neither pleasure nor pain, upeka, equanimity. So... Um, yeah. Anyway, anyway, it's kind of interesting, isn't it? It's just so very hard to get your mind around these things. It's almost like, okay, let's see what happens when I get there. You kind of have, this is why you'd need always a degree of confidence and 
and faith in these teachings because it's very hard to really get your mind around what these things can possibly mean without having the experience. And then that's not the end of it, to go beyond this as well. A mendicant, my wish, going totally beyond perceptions of forms uh, with the ending of perceptions of diversity, uh, sorry, perceptions of impingement, not focusing on perceptions of diversity, aware that space is uh, without bounds, boundless. Uh, may I enter and remain in the dimension of boundless space. Uh, let them closely focus on the immersion of samadhi due to mindfulness of breathing here. Yeah. So this is um, space as infinite or boundless. I prefer boundless uh, because uh, it's lack of boundaries that is important there. It's just, um, you know, there is no end to this space. And uh, so, yeah, so already uh, um, <laughs> the ending of perceptions of impingement, uh, I guess this is where the uh, Rupa Loka, the world of form, kind of ends completely. Uh, there has been some remnant of that world, a kind of very refined perception up to this point, uh, but now it's completely gone. Uh, and it's like a pure, absolutely pure mental state with no echo of the form world left at all. So again, these are really kind of weird kind of states of mind. Uh, and uh, of course, again, no perception of diversity that has been gone a long time ago, but now it's, you certainly don't return to that. Uh, and you are just aware that space is infinite. Uh, you don't think it, it's just an awareness, a continuous awareness uh, of this boundless space. Uh, now, mendicant, my wish going totally beyond the dimension of boundless space, where that consciousness is boundless. Uh, may I enter and remain in the dimension of boundless consciousness? Uh, let them closely focus on the Samadhi due to mindfulness of breathing here. Yeah. You go beyond uh, boundless space, you go to boundless con consciousness. Uh. Mm. What is the difference between boundless consciousness and boundless space? Well, it's, it's, uh, it's hard to say, isn't it? Uh, it's kind of, you know, how do you, how do you experience these things differently? Uh, so, uh, again, uh, just uh, take them down as a kind of a guide for the future maybe you don't even have to ever go to these things actually they are outside of the entire necessity of what you have to do as long as you practice the jhanas you're okay these are kind of additional things now mendicant may wish going totally beyond the dimension of infinite consciousness aware that there is nothing at all may i enter and remain in the dimension of nothingness and so they closely focus on the mindfulness of breathing again to get there so aware that there is nothing at all Hmm. All right. Um, a mendicant might go totally beyond the dimension of nothingness. May I enter and remain in the dimension of a neither perception nor non-perception. Uh, so let them closely focus on this immersion due to mindfulness of breathing here. So uh, this is so subtle you cannot use it even for insight meditation because you don't really know whether you are precip your percipient of uh, being neither percipient or non-percipient. Uh, this is a kind of perception, but it is so subtle, uh, you don't really know whether it is a perception or not. It's kind of really beyond the ordinary realm of things. And for that reason, it cannot be used for insight, which is kind of interesting here. So you use the previous ones for insight uh, and not this one. This only gives you the peace and tranquility, but you cannot actually contemplate these states in an ordinary way because they're so subtle here. Uh. 
Then uh, you come, now we come into the towards the very end of things. Uh, now mendicant might wish, uh, going totally beyond the dimension of neither perception nor perception, may I enter and remain in the cessation of perception and feeling. Uh, sanya Vedaita Niroda. Let them closely focus on the samadhi due to mindfulness of breathing here. So this is the ending of perception and feeling here. And if there is no perception of feeling, it means that there is nothing at all. Everything has ended. Yeah, and you go into this ending of things with a certain momentum. And when the momentum is used up, you return to consciousness again. And this is the most, uh, the deepest kind of uh, meditative state that is possible to reach. And when you come out, or when you, for ent- being able to enter these states and come out of them, normally you have to be an arahant already here. Or if not narrow hand, at least you are a non-returner here. So you're at the very, very end of this path. Uh, to, uh, so everything just blanks out, uh, and then there is absolutely nothing here. And then you emerge from it afterwards. Uh. And uh, of course, when you emerge from these kind of states, because they are so, because there is nothing here, when you come out of them, uh, your mind is the most powerful it has ever been uh, in terms of stillness, clarity, and all of these kind of things. Uh, because... Uh, everything has been kind of removed. Uh, the more peaceful things are, the less there is, uh, the more powerful and clear the mind is as a consequence of that. Uh, so this is the ending of everything. And uh, I don't know if what you think about the ending of everything, whether you think that's a good idea or not. Uh, <laughs> some of you may think that's a good idea. Some of you may think, it's, wow, this is a bit going too far. The Buddha's asking for too much. Uh, <laughs> But this is where it is very fascinating. You go to the Bahuvedaniya Sutta, in the, which I mentioned before very briefly in the Majjhimanikaya 59. And the Buddha says, this is the highest happiness. Yeah, it's the highest happiness precisely because there's nothing happening here. And this is kind of really weird. Yeah, and then, then you realize that the problem is that the presence of things is an issue. As long as there's something there, that is a kind of dukkha. The ending of everything is the highest happiness because uh, the presence of things is dukkha. And it goes completely counter to our sense of self, completely counter to our desire to prolong uh, this uh, self into the future somehow. Uh, but uh, this is what the Buddha says. Uh, and for most people, you just have to, okay, maybe the Buddha's right, let's see when we get there, uh, because it's hard to relate to. Uh, but uh, that is what makes Buddhism unique, uh, these kind of things. Uh, this is what makes Buddhism different from everything else in the whole world. Uh, everything else in the whole world is somehow about retaining the sense of self uh, and somehow making that sense, sense of self, moving it into some kind of happiness forever after. That is what all other religions really are about. Uh, if you start thinking about it, uh, if you go the ancient Brahmanism, the Hinduism, uh, is about the self and the world uh, unifying into some kind of complete Brahman and Atman being one thing. Uh, and then when you die, you kind of you that that's what you experience, that Brahman of the future. Uh, Christianity is about uh, somehow merging with God. Nobody seems to agree what God exactly is, but somehow merging with this God and then carrying on with God in the future. Uh, and the kind of the God of popular Christianity being very different from the God of theological Christianity, which is much more refined and abstract idea of God. Uh, you can read books like The History of God by Karen Armstrong to get an idea of this evolution of the idea of God in uh, the, uh, in the um, uh, uh, various uh, Christianity or whatever. Uh, 
and Islam is the same and all religions tend to be the same because all religions are still trapped in this idea of a sense of self. So the sense of self wants to carry on and then the teachings are revolve around that idea. And of course the sense of self we then project that onto the universe because it is just a, we kind of, you know, it is already there as a given and so we see that in the universe as a whole. That is how the idea of a God gets created through the sense of a self. And uh, so this is what makes Buddhism unique. Yeah? And this is what makes it really radical compared to any other teachings. Uh, and this is why Buddhism is not so popular in the world. Uh, yeah? <laughs> because it goes so much against the grain. Who wants to be a blooming Buddhist yeah? when, you, <laughs> when you hear these kind of things? Well, actually, everyone. It's because it's hard to really get this. Uh, but uh, there are people who do get this. Uh, there are people who kind of see that they actually this is really what it is all about. This is what really... Uh, this is the only way really forward. Uh, everything else, you're still trapped in a certain way, trapped in self, uh, trapped in identity, trapped in this problem, and you continue the round of existence as a consequence of that. Uh, so um, what happens then, right? This, this, this food is not, still not finished, even though you have attained the cessation of perception and feeling. Uh, but at this point, basically, you are an arahant. Uh, so what? how does the arahant experience the world. This is kind of the next thing here. Huh? And it says that when mindfulness of breathing huh, has been developed and cultivated in this way, huh, if they feel a pleasant feeling, huh, they understand that it is impermanent uh, and they are not that they are not attached to it uh, and that they don't take pleasure in it. Uh. Yeah, pleasant feelings arise because of causes and conditions. Uh, pleasant feelings arise because you make contact with the world in a certain way. Uh, contact is impermanent. Uh, experiences are impermanent. Uh, and so when that contact changes uh, because, the, because of the world changes, uh, your experience changes, well then the pleasant feeling uh, Either it fades away or becomes more pleasant or it becomes unpleasant. or any, One thing is for sure that it's going to be not going to be there after a while. It is impermanent. And because it is impermanent, it is madness to attach to it. Because if you attach to something that is impermanent, you're asking for even more dukkha. You're asking for the dukkha of mind on top of the physical dukkha that is always going to be there. So you don't want to have that mental dukkha, which is the biggest problem of all. And so you don't take pleasure in it. You just note that there is happy feelings, but you don't kind of indulge in it or try to control it or anything like that. You understand these things come and go according to their nature. And with a painful feeling, it is the same. If they feel a painful feeling, they understand that it is impermanent. And then they're not attached to the painful feeling. They don't take pleasure in it. And uh, this is what people do sometimes. Yeah, you take, if you cannot identify with the uh, pleasant feelings, you identify with the unpleasant feelings because the sense of self is so important. Uh, you would rather exist in pain uh, than not exist at all. Uh, yeah, this is kind of, this is the weird thing here. Yeah? yeah, many people, this is what is the case. Some people want to. Uh, kind of end it all or, or achieve cessation, that would be fine for some people. But for many people, the sense of self is so important. Uh, better to exist in pain than not exist at all. Uh, so you take pleasure in pain sometimes. Uh, well, then there's a neutral feeling. If they feel a neutral feeling, they understand it is impermanent. Uh, they're not attached even to that. Even the fourth jhana you don't attach to. Uh, and they don't take pleasure in it. Uh, so you understand fully the nature of these things. Uh, 
And uh, this is what we don't. You know, you may, maybe you think that you understand uh, the nature of feelings. Uh, maybe you think you understand that these things come and go. Uh, but we don't really fully understand that. Uh, and the reason is because of the sense of self. Uh, the sense of self has this kind of underlying assumption uh, that there is, it is possible somehow to experience just pleasure or experience things in a way whereby things are more permanent than they actually are. That is what the sense of self does. It deludes you into seeing impermanence, seeing permanence where actually things are impermanent. Uh, so don't jump to conclusions to think that you understand this. Uh, even though on one level, on a kind of intellectual level, it seems obvious, uh, there is a deeper level, the emotional level, the intuitive level, uh, whereby still you take these things to be permanent in a way that you shouldn't. Uh, and that is where you need to investigate further. Uh, and really to be able to make that investigation deep enough so it really starts to bite, you need that samadhi. You can get that power of the mind, the stillness of the mind. You can retain your focus on these things uh, until eventually you penetrate through that uh, and you see what is going on. Uh, so um, here, the, the, the difference between theory and uh, reality often is quite large. Uh, yeah, and uh, so um, anyway, okay, let's go to the very end of the sutta. If they feel a pleasant feeling, they feel it detached. Yeah, you are not really attached to that pleasant feeling. Yeah. You're, you're not attached to your five, own five khandas anymore. Yeah. You see them just as nature coming and going. Yeah. Everything is just nature coming and going. Yeah. It is still going to be painful. Yeah. You still recognize it as pain yeah, or, or happiness, yeah. but you don't actually have any uh, personal ownership of these things anymore. Yeah. You are detached from it. Yeah. It's nature doing its thing. Yeah. And it's kind of weird, yeah? it's kind of hard to really fully grasp what's going on. Huh? If they feel a painful feeling, they feel it detached. Huh? If you feel a neutral feeling, a dukkha masukkha, you feel it detached. Huh? Nature taking its course. It's like you're seeing things that don't belong to you. You go down the street, you see a house. Huh? How do you feel about that house? Okay, maybe it's a nice house, so it gives rise to a happy feeling, but you're not really attached to that house. Huh? You just allow that feeling to come and go a little bit. Huh? In the same way, the Feelings inside of you, you don't really attach to them anymore, even when it is, feels personal for most ordinary people. Uh, to you, that personalness is, has gone now. I feel the end, uh, sorry, feeling the end of the body approaching, they understand. I feel the end of the body approaching here. Uh, Feeling the end of life approaching, they understand. I feel the end of life approaching. Yeah. They understand when my body breaks up uh, and my life has come to an end, uh, everything that is felt, uh, since I no longer take pleasure in it, uh, will become cool right here. Siti, Siti Bhutto, cool. And um, so this is kind of... Uh, the end of life of the arahant when the when the arahant comes to the end of life this is what the arahant does yeah or, or how they think or how they see life okay now it's all coming to an end finally the workman gets his or her wages because now everything is kind of coming to a stop 
And uh, it's the taking pleasure in things. Uh, this is where the craving comes from, right? Uh, and the, when, when you don't take pleasure in anything anymore in the whole world, uh, there's no forward momentum of the mind uh, because the mind is no, no longer going anywhere. The mind is no longer interested in the future. There's nothing in the future that is interesting. Uh, the only thing that is interesting is cessation, ending of things. Uh, and because ending of things is interesting, you just allow things to come to an end. Uh, but you don't even crave for that ending here. Uh, because that would be another craving that propels you into the future. You just accept that these causes, uh, uh, the conditions that drive this process have come to an end. And now you just enjoy the whole thing fading out, becoming cool right there. So this is uh, how the end of the life of the Arahant comes about. Suppose an oil lamp depended on oil and a wick to burn as the oil and the wick are used up, uh, it would be extinguished. Uh, yeah, extinguished here is a kind of critical word. Uh, uh, peti or something is the Pali word. It's basically the verbal form of nibbana. So it basically means nibbana. It becomes nibbanad due to lack of fuel. Uh, yeah. So this is the idea of extinguishment. And this is why extinguishment is a very good translation for nibbana. In the same way, feeling the end of the body approaching, they understand, I feel the end of the body approaching. Feeling the end of life approaching, they understand, I feel the end of life approaching. They understand when the body breaks up and my life has come to an end, everything that's felt, since I no longer take pleasure in it, will become cool right here. So the causes are gone, the oil, yeah, the, the, the burning, of the of the flame everything has kind of come to is all used up uh, there's no craving anymore this thing that drives you into the future has has gone the craving is extinguished uh, and uh, because of that there is no more uh, the uh, the lamp also is extinguished as a consequence uh, so we are like lamps going out uh, and uh, this is this uh, idea here of uh, the ending of the buddhist path uh, so uh, don't know what you make of that, but uh, anyway, that's uh, how it is expressed in this particular sutta. And this kind of way of expressing it is found in a few places in the suttas. Uh, and uh, so this is um, the uh, kind of usual way of describing the end of the arahant, the end of samsaric existence, uh, right there. Uh. So, um, all right. Uh, the simile of the lamp. Um, the end of the path now I just want to kind of uh, look at a few last little suttas just to kind of uh, wrap this whole thing up and uh, they are also uh, very interesting uh, especially the last one we will come to is actually quite an, it's a beautiful little sutta that to, to round off the whole thing with uh, but I want to look at a few more kind of ideas that are Kind of, that kind of touched upon the idea of awakening uh, and how the Buddha's awakening, what it actually meant in a broader kind of context. Uh, and this next sutta is about devatas and how the Buddha uh, thought about devatas uh, and uh, on his awakening, maybe even after his actual awakening, uh, or maybe before, I'm not entirely sure, uh, uh, how he kind of looked at the entire universe, understanding the universe, understanding the various kinds of rebirth and these kind of things. Uh, and I, I don't know, it's a little bit interesting. So I'm just going to go through this fairly quickly because it's, uh, it's a little bit on the side of things, but it's uh, nonetheless, this is how the Buddha describes 
his part of his awakening here. So this is Sutta from the Numerical Discourses, the chapter of the Eights, number 64, at Gaia Head, Gaia Sisa. This is also where the fire sermon, the famous sermon, was spoken. I think these are the only two teachings, the only two discourses at this particular place. It's fairly close to Bodhgaya, not far away in that vicinity. And the Fire Sermon, of course, was the third uh, discourse given by the Buddha according to the traditional um, presentation of the suttas. Uh, the first one was the Dhamma Chakka Pavattana Sutta, setting in motion the will of the Dhamma. Second one, the Anattalakkana Sutta, the characteristics of non-self. And the third one is the Adita Pariyaya Sutta, the discourse on Adita, on fire. Uh, and uh, that is where a thousand fire ascetics uh, yeah, were uh, taught, and they all became arahants at the end of that famous sutta. And this sutta here is then also spoken there. Maybe this was at the same time. Not entirely sure. I'm not aware that the Buddha went to this place very often, so it may have been the same time. This is what the Buddha says. First of all, uh, introduction. At one time, the Buddha was staying near Gaya, at Gaya Head. There the Buddha addressed the mendicants. Mendicants, before my awakening, when I was still not awake, but intent on awakening, I perceived light, but did not see visions of forms, or did not see forms. So this is very similar to what we had before. Yeah, we were looking at the Upakilesa Sutta, and we're looking at the idea of nimittas through the idea of lights and forms, obasa and rupa. And so this is similar, except that here the forms turn out to be different kind of forms. And that is what is sort of interesting about this. Um, and then it occurred to me, what if I were to, were to both perceive light and see visions of forms? Then my knowledge and vision would be even more purified. Um, so here, okay, let me just, okay, so after some time living alone, withdrawn, diligent and resolute, I perceived light and saw forms, but I did not associate with those deities, converse and engage in discussion. So you can see here, light and forms are not really samadhi nimittas, they're not things that you use for samadhi, here it refers to something else, it refers to actually devatas. And so devatas are perceived in a similar way to the samadhi nimittas. They are perceived as forms because, of course, if you are a being, you have a certain form. And because devatas are bright and light, so they are perceived in a similar way to the samadhi nimittas. Not exactly the same, but similar. And so here it is a different kind of vision and forms. So this is all the excitement that you can expect in meditation. Yeah, All of these various things that you can see here. This is a kind of part of that. So first of all, he then sees this devatas, and then, he th then the Buddha says, well, actually, I should associate with them. Hang out, hang out with this devatas. Yeah? Converse, engage in discussion with them. They sound pretty like human, right? You hang out with them, you, you kind of engage in discussion with them, you converse with them, you have a nice, you talk about things, uh, and you have to be careful you don't get into wrong kinds of speech, uh, just like in the human realm. Uh, you don't engage in gossip about what this devata is doing and that devata is doing, uh, yeah, they, <laughs> and these kind of things. So you have to watch your speech. So they're still practicing a right speech in these kind of realms. Uh, and it all sounds very 
ordinary, doesn't it? It sounds like, okay, what's the, diff- what's the big deal of becoming a devata? And I think this is kind of one of the things that you read in the Sutta. Actually, it is not such a big deal. Uh, yes, there's more happiness. Yes, the food is a bit more delicious. Uh, yeah, you know, and all of this. Uh, so, uh, but actually, it doesn't really make all that much difference. Uh, and I did a retreat some years ago for... Um, uh, a Malaysian uh, Buddhist group, uh, which, which we, you know, are in contact with all the time, and and I and the um, title of that retreat was "What can we learn from the devas?" I took all the suttas from the devas, uh, and then lots of really nice suttas from the devas, like Sakka Panya Sutta as a classic, the questions of Sakka Digandikaya Twenty One, long, long Discord Twenty One. It's a beautiful sutta with lots of pr- really profound dhamma at the same time, a narrative that is really extraordinary and strange at the same time. Uh, the best suttas, they have this combination of a really interesting narrative. Narrative is like the story, right? A nice story, and then deep dhamma at the same time. And when you combine those, uh, it becomes really complete and full. It's like you get a full meal, in a sense, from these suttas. Uh, and uh, the more you delved into these various suttas, uh, yeah, and th- this particular Sakapanya Sutta, you have Sakka is the kind of the lord of the gods, uh, of course, uh, Devinda. And he comes down to the Buddha, but he's a bit shy about meeting the Buddha. Eh? The Lord of the Gods is shy. It's very cute. <laughs> and so he sends down these heavenly musicians and all these kind of things to get the Buddha's attention. Eh? But you get this feeling that gods are very human. Eh? And then you read the suttas, and the more you read them, you realize they have the same problems as we, we have. Yeah, they have children who behave not, don't behave so well and do bad things. They have little, little wars, right, in the, in the heavenly realm, and they have their dukkha in their ways, and they have these big palaces, and they have to look after them and build them and all of these kind of things. And it does, it does sound like a glorified form of human existence. It doesn't really sound all that interesting, to be honest with you. The dukkha is largely the same. And the weird thing is that when I read the suttas in that way, and I start to see these gods, actually they start to seem very realistic. Because they are just like the human realm. They are, you know, if you kind of imagine the human realm, you have the worst kind of, you know, the most poor and, and worst educated and the most uh, full of illness person, you know, born in a poor society. And, and then you have the kind of most wealthy person who lives gloriously in the human realm. It sounds just like that human realm, the distinction, but taken even further, uh, yeah, even more glory, whatever. Uh, it is not fundamentally different uh, from the human realm. Uh, and to me, this is what makes the Deva realms realistic. I can believe in these realms. They actually make sense. Why shouldn't such beings exist? They are just like us in many ways. They are impermanent, uncertain, unreliable. Ultimately, they have suffering just like us. I can kind of get my mind around that. It makes sense. And this is the weird thing. We live in a society where these kind of gods have kind of been put to one side. They are not really important anywhere. We consider this a primitive uh, part of our history here. When these kind of gods were kind of put to one side and we unified all of these gods into one god and that became the god of Islam, of Christianity, of Judaism, of Hinduism or whatever. And that became the real kind of deity here. But to me that's a step backwards uh. Yeah, we have gone backwards one because we have gone from something that is realistic to something that actually is no, no longer realistic. Because that God, these kind of gods, you can experience them. This is what the Buddha is doing here. He's experiencing these gods. He's there hanging out with them. You can see what they're up to. You can see their limitations. You can see their impermanence. 
but the God of kind of a theistic religion is something which is outside of our experience. You can never experience that kind of God. You cannot experience things that are permanent. That is just an, an, an act of imagination. You cannot experience anything that is outside of time and space. That is also just an act of imagination. These things are beyond. These things are human created. They must be because they cannot be experienced. And so we have gone from something which is like a realistic understanding of the world, things that can actually exist, and we have moved on to something that has to be human created. It's a figment of the imagination. And that to me is a step backwards. And so for me, this is what is interesting. These kind of gods, they make sense. I can relate to them, but not the kind of god that is permanent and always there, which is really just a projection of our own sense of self. That is why we believe in those gods, because it's a projection of our sense of self, which of course is this experience which is false, that there are permanent things in the world. So, um, so this is uh, what the Buddha is doing here. He's trying to under- fully understand the world, right? Fully understand what is possible. Uh, and that is why he goes to uh, have a chat with his deities and see what they're up to, uh, yeah? And kind of figure out more about these uh, heavenly realms, uh, understand them fully, understand how, whether they are impermanent or not, and all of these kind of things. Uh, and... Uh, Uh, but I did not, yeah, so after, after some time, I perceived the, the light and visions and vision of forms, and I associated with those deities, conversed and engaged in discussion. Uh, but I did not know which order of gods uh, those, deit- those deities comes from or came from. Uh, yeah, so you need to know about the full extent of the uh, possible rebirths, the various orders of deities. Uh, you cannot just know about some of them. You have to kind of get this feeling for uh, the whole uh, of existence. Uh, what happiness and pleasure are available uh, to the extent to which they are long-lasting or not. Uh, and to see see all of this is necessary for someone is the Buddha so he can actually explain what is going on properly. Uh, then it occurred to me what if I were to perceive light and see visions and forms and associate with those deities, converse and engage in discussion with them uh, and found out which orders of gods those deities come from? Uh, then my knowledge and vision would become even more purified. Uh, and after some time, I perceive lights and visions, I associated with those deities uh, and I found out which orders of gods uh, those deities came from. Uh, but I did not know what deeds caused those deities to be reborn there after passing away from here. Here is always the human realm. Yeah, that's kind of here in the suttas. So how do you go from here to become reborn as a god? So this is understanding the causality, the causal structure of the universe, if you like. How do you get reborn into one realm? How do you get reborn somewhere else? Understanding the laws of Kamma is really what is uh, behind this. Uh, and so, um, again, it's about this whole understanding. Yeah, the Tevija, this is really an aspect of the Tevija, uh, the idea of rebirth and the idea of understanding the laws of Kamma. So this is part of the awakening of the Buddha himself. Uh, um, you may ask, is it necessary to know all of these things? Uh, why does the Buddha go into all of these details? Uh, 
And uh, the answer is it's not really required because the awakening experience, you understand the problem of rebirth, you understand that rebirth is impermanent, is not really satisfactory. And so you know these things directly through that experience, but you don't really, you don't know the details, you just know the overall principle. That's what awakening is, yeah? understanding the principle of dukkha, the causality behind dukkha, but you don't actually see the details of the world. And so if you want to be fully awakened, it's good to have an understanding of all the details because it uh, makes for more precision in the way you teach and the way you uh, present these things, especially if you're going to be the teacher of the devas. uh, It's good to know a few things about those devas if you're going to teach them. Um, After some time, I found out what deeds caused those deities to be reborn there after passing away from here. But I did not know what deeds caused those deities to have such food and have such experience of pleasure and pain. Yeah, so the understanding of the pleasure and pain in those realms and understanding the causes behind that pleasure and pain. Food here is a, a nutriment. That is what sustains your existence in those places. And so what sustains them and what the experience of pleasure and pain in those in those areas again this is important obviously because uh, it is about understanding happiness is ultimately what buddhism is about understanding dukkha and happiness uh, is really what it comes down to uh. so after some time i found out what deeds caused those deities to have such food and such experience of pleasure and pain uh. but i didn't know that these deities have a lifespan of such a length uh. so uh, Again, knowing the length and knowing the impermanence uh, is kind of part and parcel of this. uh, And you need to know that all the way up to the very highest realms, all the way up to the very top. uh, And uh, some of those highest realms are just incredibly long lifespans according to the suttas. uh. So once you start kind of, remember the the way that these various realms work according to the suttas, you have all the sensory realms uh, and there are ten Realms. This is the traditional explanation, ten realms in the sensory realm. What are those tens? The very bottom you find the hell realms. Above the hell realm you find the animal realm. Above the animal realm you find the ghost realm. Yeah, The ghost realm is actually above the animal realm. Above the ghost realm you find the human realm. So we are just above. The ghost realm is still dukkha. The first kind of realm where you experience more happiness and suffering is the human realm. But we are very close to the edge, yeah? We are very close to kind of the, the suffering of the ghost and the animal. We're not that far away, yeah? And then above the human realm, you have the four great kings, the Maha, uh, what is it, yeah, the Maha Chaturajika uh, Devas. And then above that, you have the Tavatingsa, the, thir- the gods of the 33. That's where Sakka hangs out, yeah? These are still quite close to the human realm. Uh, they are kind of glorified human beings. Uh. And then we come to the Yama Loka, uh, Above that uh, is the you know kind of that become the seventh realm of the essential existence. Then comes the Tusita gods above that, and that is where it starts to get really refined, because uh, Tusita means contented. Uh, so this is the realm of the contented gods, uh, and we can imagine the way to get reborn there would be to do meditation practice, right? Uh, you meditate, you come there, you're really contented in that realm. Uh, you don't do very much. You're just generally content. There's still some sensuality there, but probably quite refined sensuality at this point. Uh, and then you go to the, um, uh, then you go to the uh, Nimanarati 
Devasa. Yeah, this is the second last of the sensual realms. And Nimana Rati means to delight in creation. So these are like the artists of the world, the highest kind of artists. They create things. Yeah, they're always creating new things and delight in that activity, the doing of creating things. So they are presumably very attached to the doer. Yeah, the doer that kind of makes things in the world, make beautiful things. And you can imagine that it's going to be very, very beautiful in that particular realm with all that creative activity. And maybe some of the artists in our human realm have been reborn from that realm. Yeah, and they continue their delight in creation, possibly. Above that is the Paranimitavasavati realm, which are the, the beings that delight in controlling the creations of others. So they kind of... they. Use those devas below and say, create this, create that. Uh, and they kind of delight and just enjoy the creation of others. Uh, these are the ten classical realms uh, according to the suttas. Uh, how, how important is this? Well, I think it is just a general idea of how the world works. Uh, yeah, uh, you can be reborn. There are many sub realms within this. Uh, sometimes these realms may merge or they may disappear. For example, the human realm, when the human humans exist for 80,000 years, uh, is it still a human realm? Kind of, but kind of not. It's obviously, it's going to be quite different. Uh, so I think there's a lot of flexibility here. Remember, nothing is permanent, right? Uh, things are always changing. Uh, so the number of realms may very well change as well. It's just a general idea of how the world works. Uh, and above that, you have the Brahma Loka. Yeah? And that is where the lifespans become very long. This is where you go beyond the sensory realm. And these are the outcomes of meditation practice, the rebirth in the Brahma Loka. And so you enter a jhana state, you get reborn in the Brahma Loka. And here the lifespan is said to be an eon. Yeah? The whole expansion and contraction of a universe. And uh, that's one eon. And then you go up through the various Brahma Lokas. Uh, and there is various, each kind of jhana corresponds to about three different kinds of rebirth. Uh, and then you have the second jhana called the, uh, uh, called the um, what are they called again? The, uh, the, uh, Abhasa, the Abhasara Devas, something like that. Uh, and then uh, you have, uh, my memory is getting a bit... Uh, bit dodgy now. <laughs> so you have the Basra and then you have the th th equivalent to the third jhana and then you have the uh, equivalent to the fourth jhana. Uh, yeah? And then you have one interesting kind of beings they call the Asatta, uh, the Asanyasatta, the beings without perception. Uh, it's kind of a weird realm where you have no perception. Uh, again, it's just some kind of material substrate or something weird going on. Anyway, and then you go beyond that and you have the immaterial realms. You have beings kind of get reborn in the material realms because they have practiced these states all the way up to the neva sanya, nasanya, ayatana, the beings of a dimension of neither perception nor perception. And these are said to last for 84,000 eons. Yeah, So it's like... It's almost incalculable, right? Uh, and of course, the Buddha had to get his head around all of these things, all of these realms. He had to see how these things work uh, yeah, and understanding. Because even if it's 84,000 eons, uh, once you come out of them, uh, you kind of snake and ladders. You go down to the bottom again. Uh, yeah, fall down, bang, to the bottom, uh, maybe. Uh, and you start all over. Uh, and of course, at that point, uh, it's just a dream. It's just in the past, those 84,000 eons. Uh, they don't exist anymore. You don't, can't even remember that you had them because you have gone back to an ordinary human existence or whatever it might be. Uh, 
And so it doesn't matter how long they are, uh, because when they come out of them, uh, they are, it's irrelevant. Uh, and uh, the perception of time is also very subjective in these things. Uh, they may, from a human point of view, they may look like 84,000 eons, but for them, it kind of, because nothing is changing, uh, there's no real perception of time in these things. Uh, it often seems very quick. Uh, you come out, uh, you start from square one. Uh, so the Buddha weighs up all of these things. Uh, he sees the whole universe in this way. He understands the extent to which it is, uh, you know, is impermanent. Uh, and uh, only when he sees all of this properly is he able to kind of claim the full awakening experience. Uh, how is it possible to see that devas last for 84,000 eons? Well, he will do that through recollection of past lives and that sort of thing. Uh, and he will see, see it in that way. Uh, and then he will gradually build up this map of the, uh, uh, the whole uh, uh, sangsaric, of sangsaric existence. Uh, sometimes we think about this as like the universe, but it's not really the universe. Uh, it is just the personal experience of what is happening here. This is just experience, right? Uh, that's really what the universe is, personal experience. Uh, so the Buddha does all of these kind of things, uh, and this is part of what he's seeing here, seeing the lifespan, right, up to the 84,000 eons uh, of these uh, beings. Uh, uh, but then, uh, the last thing here, I didn't know whether or not I had previously lived together with those deities. Uh, yeah, have I been there before? Have I also had these kind of experiences? Uh, then it occurred to me, what if I were to perceive light and see forms? Uh, and associate with those deities, converse and engage in discussion, uh, and found out which orders of gods those deities come from, uh, and what deeds cause those deities to be reborn there after passing away from here, uh, and what deeds cause those deities to have such food, uh, or such nutriment, uh, and such an experience of pleasure and pain. Uh, and that those, these deities have a lifespan of such a length, uh, and whether or not I have previously lived with those deities, uh, then my knowledge and vision uh, would become even more purified. Uh, after some time, I found out whether or not I have previously lived together with those deities. Uh, so what do you think? Did, does, did the Buddha have, did, did he live with those deities in past lives? Uh, and of course, yes, uh, yeah, we have all been in these things in past lives, and now we are here. That's kind of depressing, isn't it? You've lived with these 84,000 eons, you have been blissed out of your mind, so much bliss you can't even imagine how much it was. And now you're back here again, back to square one, kind of desperately trying to kind of get back to something really nice and get out of all the problems of human life. So... And so this is uh, the point. We have all been going up and down in this samsaric existence. Yeah, for you cannot. Yeah, there's no kind of beginning, as the Buddha says, of these things. Uh, and there's only a few realms that you have never been, been to. And those, these are the realms through which there's only one escape, and that is Nibbana. And these are called the Suddhavasa in the suttas. Uh, these are the pure abodes where only Anagam, is non-returners, get reborn. Uh, once you get reborn there, there's no way. But apart from that, uh, we have been to all of these various kinds of realms. Uh, and uh, that is what the Buddha recognizes. Uh, and because he recognizes that, he understands the limitations of these things. Uh, and this is what I was talking about at the, towards the beginning of this retreat. Uh, the Buddha weighs up uh, the all experiences. He weighs up the asada, the gratification in these things. Uh, he weighs up the adinava, which are the drawbacks or the danger in existence. Uh, and when he weighs it all up, uh, he sees the problems far outweigh the benefits. Uh, 
not only does it do that, but the actual meditative experiences uh, that can be attained, uh, once you start to see that, you start to understand the relative happiness and suffering in the universe. Uh, if you want more happiness, uh, of course, you have to lean in that direction uh, and not towards, uh, uh, towards uh, the suffering of the world. Uh, and then you seek the escape uh, because you, s- you start to see the relative uh, balance between these things. Uh, and uh, it's very hard for us to understand these things properly, uh, the degree to which we suffer, because we are so immersed in it. Uh, it is very interesting when you see someone else suffering in the world. Uh, yeah, you, you go to a very poor country, for example, you see very poor people struggling to get by, uh, and you feel concern for them. You feel, wow, I'm really glad I live in Australia, because wow, so much suffering, right? <laughs> That's how you feel. But actually, when you ask those people, because they are used to it, for them it's fine. Yeah, they are quite happy. They are smiling. They are kind of dealing with it. Yes, they have a lot of hardship. But because they are born that way, actually, they are okay with it. And still, when we look at them, we think, Jai Jeepers, I'd really like to help you out. Or that's all that suffering you've got. But they are actually okay with it. And the devas, they look at us in the same way. They think, you, you're all suffering a lot. You don't even realize how much suffering you have. We'd like to help you out. This is this, again, coming back to this uh, worm and the lovely pile of dung, right? Uh, We don't want to let go of our dung because our dung, wow, we eat the dung, right? Uh, The dung is nice and warm, yeah, it kind of surrounds us. Yay, dung. (laughs) And this is kind of part of the issue. We don't really understand what is going on. uh, And this is the beauty of the spiritual path. uh, As you start to kind of withdraw from this world, uh, as you start to see an alternative reality, uh, you start to understand more of the problem. uh. But it is not just that. Of course, it is also this whole larger picture of samsara and the potential for suffering is also enormous in various ways. uh. Anyway, let's come to the very end here. As long as my knowledge and vision about the deities was not fully purified from these eight perspectives, uh, I didn't announce my supreme perfect awakening in this world with its gods, Maras and Brahmas, uh, this population with its ascetics and Brahmins, its gods and humans. Uh, But when my knowledge and vision about the deities was fully purified from these eight perspectives, uh, I announced my supreme perfect awakening in this world with its gods, Maras and Brahmas, uh, this population with its ascetics and Brahmins, its gods and humans. Uh, Knowledge and vision arose in me. Uh, My freedom is unshakable. This is my last birth. Now there is no more future lives. Uh, (laughs) <laughs> so uh, there you are that is a little sutta out of the ordinary I apologize for indulging a bit in various random suttas I think that is maybe a sutta you have never heard before because it's not commonly <laughs> commonly taught but uh, sometimes I just like to do things that are a bit different because it gives a slightly different perspective on the Dhamma when you do different things and uh, I could do exactly the same suttas every time uh, I remember in uh, Perth, I once said, oh, I like to do a bit different suttas. And this person, no, do the same ones every time. We want to hear the gradual training every single time you do it. Uh, and uh, that was kind of nice because I think they had understood something about what is really important in the Dhamma. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, uh, I also like sometimes to do things a bit differently. So, so there you are anyway. Okay, so please keep you enjoying yourself. We only have a few hours left of this retreat. Uh, 
Uh, have a nice lunch once more and then as always we'll see you back at two and we'll finish off the retreat then at two o'clock and uh, do everything then so let's just pay respect to the buddha dhamma sangha